0: We'll open up your Bibles, church, to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 this morning, and as you do, I think they're probably watching, I want to congratulate uh, J.R. and Christy Archer. They had a little baby girl this week, and they're first, and that's awesome. And uh, you know, we've, we've had a lot of little baby girls born this year, and getting baptized, and what I've noticed when... They're up here, and we're announcing their names. None of our little baby girls have been named Jezebel. Isn't that interesting? And uh, none of those little boys that we have brought up here have been named uh, Judas. And there's been no Cains, C-A-I-N. Maybe a Cain, K-A-Y-N, E, or something like that, but no Cain. Isn't it interesting how the Bible has influenced our name choices. I think most of us have probably uh, known this story of Cain and Abel from the time that we were children. But imagine if you were opening the Bible for the first time you, you start at the beginning of a book, right? And you go to Genesis 1, and you read that God has created the world. And you go to Genesis 2, and God creates the man and a woman, and he performs the first wedding ceremony. And then in chapter 3, this married couple go off the rails, right? And they disobey God, and they, are, they have to endure punishment from God. But even in the midst of this punishment, they receive God's grace and mercy. And then you turn to chapter 4. And you begin to read chapter four, and you see that Eve has a couple of boys. Isn't that wonderful? She has a couple of boys. The the first humans that are born sinners, right? The first generation of born sinners are now here on the earth. You know, what would you expect from that? You know, I mean, sin has just entered into the world. They're the first generation of sinners. They probably, what, would maybe talk back to their parents, right? Maybe disobey a little bit. Maybe in the middle of the night, they sneak out of dad's house and borrow the keys to the car and do a ride, right? Something like that. But murder? Already? Murder? I mean, that escalated fast, didn't it? I mean, it kind of shows us something about sin, that sin has entered into the world and it does not enter in gradually. It corrupts thoroughly and radically and absolutely the human line. So let's read this story starting in verse one. And this morning, I wanna hopefully give you three gospel applications from it. Verse one, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, "'Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? "'If you do well, will you not be accepted? "'And if you do not do well, "'sin is crouching at the door. "'Its desire is contrary to you, "'but you must rule over it.'" Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's, your Abel, where's, your, where's Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. On the earth, let's pray together, Heavenly Father. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to come to your house to worship you. We thank you for the worship; it has already taken place. Now, Lord, we worship you by coming to your word and sitting before it. Would you open our hearts, our ears, our minds? Would you do a work through your word? Would your Spirit drive its message home? Would you fill me with your spirit this morning, Lord Jesus, so that what is said is exactly what these dear people need to hear this morning. I ask this for their good and for the glory of your name. Amen. So this chapter opens with some foreshadowing, right? Uh, Eve has a son, and there's a word play in the Hebrew language, the underlying language of the Old Testament. There's a word play going on, and there's some word choices that indicate that Eve is pretty proud of herself, right? And, and so what she literally says, modern translations softened the words there in verse one, but what she literally says is, I have created a man with God. I have created a man with God. Not a baby, not a little boy. I have created a man. Reminds me of that scene on uh, Castaway where Tom Hanks, fire, I've created fire, right? There's all this pride in that, right? I have created man with God. Remember, God had promised her that one of her seed would be born that would crush the head of the serpent in chapter three. And so you can understand why there's a lot of hope invested in this boy. This is the boy, right? Lord promised seed would crush the head of a serpent. I created man with Lord, And then there's Abel. For some reason, I know when I grew up, I think I was taught that they were twins. But there's actually nothing in the scripture that says they were twins. But again, we have foreshadowing. Uh, Eve names her son. She uses a word that we're very familiar with in this church because a few years ago in the summer, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes and the main word in the book of Ecclesiastes was the word Hevel, Abel, Hevel. And that word is important, it, it means fleeting, transitory, temporary. It's kind of like, you know, on that one morning that we have here in central Florida that's cold out of the entire year, and we go outside and we breathe and we can, our, our breath turns to, you know, fog, and, and it's there and then it's gone, right? Here and then gone, and that's what the word Abel means, and Abel, he lives up to the meaning of his name. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd. And it comes time for them to worship God. And in their worship of God this morning, we have our first application. Both the form and the sincerity of our worship are important to God. No doubt Cain and Abel had learned what it meant and what it looked like to worship God from their father, Adam. He's the one who taught them how to be done. Back in Genesis chapter three, God sacrifices these animals. There's a blood sacrifice. He takes the skin from these animals and he creates clothing for them to cover their sin and the shame of their nakedness. We know from the scriptures, the the patriarchal period, that's what this is called, the patriarchs, that it was a central element of their worship. The book of Job, for example, the story of Noah that we'll see uh, in a couple of weeks, that in the worship of God, it always involved a blood sacrifice. This form It's important from the beginning of the Old Testament. Blood sacrifice was an indispensable portion and aspect of the worship of God because it pointed people to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate blood sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So they've learned from Adam as boys, but now they come to God on their own as grown men to worship God. And what's clear in this story is that Abel, he comes with the right heart and the right form, the right sacrifice that God expected. He brings a blood sacrifice from the first fruits, from the best, of his flock. He brings God the expected form of sacrifice, and he does it with a heart that is filled with faith and gratitude, expressing his worship to God. He comes in faith. And the Scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that this was what was so important about his sacrifice, the form and the Spirit. It was by faith, the Scriptures tell us that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. Cain, he brings his sacrifice from the fruit of the ground. And you'll notice, and it's, it's actually screaming at us in the silence that the, of no commentary as to the quality of his sacrifice. It just says he brought some of his fruit. And so he does not come in the way that God commands. The form was not there. At church, we might want to be tempted to be asked, does it really matter that we worship God in the form that he calls for? Does that really matter? Isn't what's really more important the heart? Well, just ask the Israelites how that worked out, right? They, they, they're in the desert and they've come out of Egypt and God is there in the, in the form of the cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night and they want to worship him and they all get together and they think, you know what would be a great way to worship God? Let's build a golden calf and let's worship him with this. How'd that work out for them, right? Or, or later on, God through the prophet Malachi. Here's the Jews, the Israelites. They're, they're obeying the Mosaic commands. They're going into the temple and they're sacrificing their animals and they're even bringing their grain offerings and things that were instituted in the Mosaic covenant. And God through the prophet Malachi says, just stop. Stop. Stop what you're doing. I'd rather you shut the doors of the temple and no longer worship me than continue to do what you are doing. You're coming in and you're just bringing me your leftovers. Oh, you have the right form, but it's clear your heart's not there at all. And you're not giving me your best. And throughout the week, you cheat and you steal. You betray your spouse. You live as if you are in charge of your own life and then you come into the temple and you make these offerings. You go through these motions of worship. They make me sick. Just stop it. I'd rather have no worship than this kind of worship. This was a recurring problem. What Cain does here is a recurring problem throughout the storyline of the Old Testament so that Isaiah will say, God will say to Isaiah the prophet, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. This was Cain. Going through the motions, worshiping God in a way that was convenient for him, taking on himself rights and prerogatives, that only belong to God. You see, Cain here is actually what Cain is doing here is essentially what Adam and Eve did in chapter three in their rebellion. Remember last week we said how in taking the fruit and eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what Adam and Eve were doing were were attempting to set themselves up as autonomous beings, no longer under the kingship and the lordship of God. They were taking prerogatives that belong to God alone. And they were saying, we know what is good for us. We know what is best. We know right from wrong for us and the way that we should walk. We can do this. We can make these decisions for ourselves. We don't need God for this. They were taking prerogatives that belong to God. And this is what Cain is doing He's determining how God should be worshiped when only God has the right to decree how he is to be worshiped. God tells us how he wants to be worshiped. And any form of worship that is contrary to what he commands is rebellious sin. And it's an indication that we are trying to set ourselves up as autonomous rulers of our lives. Abel's worship flowed from a heart of submission and faith and gratitude to God. Cain's worship was mediocre ceremonial tokenism and it was as much a worship of himself as it was God. The form and the sincerity of our worship is important to God. He calls on us to obey him and to listen to everything that he says to us. How important is that? It has eternal ramifications. Think about it for a moment. Man-made religion insists that it doesn't actually matter all that much, maybe the form of our worship, or what we worship or even who we worship as long as we're sincere, right? As long, it doesn't really matter the road that we take to heaven so long as we're kind and we treat people well and we are good people and we're sincere in what we believe. Jesus addressed this. He he talked to a group of people who were so sincere in their worship of God, and they had all of these ways of doing it that looked so good, and they appeared to be holy, And, and Jesus called the Pharisees a pit of vipers, that they were rebelling against the very God that they claimed to obey. We don't come to God on our terms No matter how how reasonable it seems, no matter how sincere we may think we are from God's perspective, this is completely unreasonable, and it is completely insincere, and it is a rejection of who He is. We come to God on His terms. We come on His terms, and His terms start with us agreeing with Him that He is God. He is the Creator who's worthy to be worshipped, and only He is worthy to be worshipped and we come on his terms agreeing with what he says about ourselves that we're sinners in need of a savior. Secondly, unresolved sin, what we see in this passage is that unresolved sin and conflict inevitably leads to more sin and greater conflict. Verse six says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. The sin desires to rule you, to master you, to destroy you, Cain, but you must rule, you must master, you must destroy it. Hey, who's in this story, who do you think Cain is mad at? Who do you think he's mad at? He's mad at God. And conflict with God always leads to conflict with those people who are closest to us. When we sin against God, when we are mad at God, when we rebel at God, to God. When when our vertical relationship is not right, that spiritual conflict with God inevitably spills over into our horizontal relationships and the interpersonal relationships are then gonna be characterized by conflict and it will happen in all arenas of our lives, our home, our work, our friends, our social relationships, you name it. Cain's pride was hurt and it led to resentment and anger towards God and towards the person that God approved of, his brother, Abel. For the first time in the Bible, for the first time, but certainly not the last time, we see in this passage how sin begets more sin. Rebellion against God leads to even greater conflict. His pride, because that's essentially the issue here, at the core of Cain is pride. His pride leads to false worship and to resentment towards God and towards Abel. His resentments, his unforgiving uh, spirit leads to anger. And his anger and his anger, he can't hear the gracious declaration and warning of God. uh, Cain, sin is at your doorstep. It's going to destroy you if you don't take care of this thing right here, this attitude that you have that seems so small right now. It is a lion that will devour you. And he can't hear it because of his anger towards God, his resentment, and his anger like So many of our resentments and anger in life leads to even greater sin and greater conflict. There's a reason why those who go through recovery have to deal with resentments. They play such a major role in our lives. His pride and his resentment, it leads to him planning the first murder, the murder of his brother. His resentment and anger towards God leads to the first lie in the Bible. It leads to the first petulant, disrespectful questioning of God in the Bible. And as you see in the following verses, verses 17 to 24, his sin infects and affects his family line. To the next seven generations that are listed here, Each generation becomes more and more evil until finally Noah's flood wipes out Cain's family line for all of eternity. In the little book of Jude, Christians are warned to not walk in the way of Cain. He has this empty worship, this ceremonial tokenism. He doesn't listen to the mercy of God that is extended to him. God warns him that sin is seeking to destroy him. He ignores these warnings. He nurses this resentment and anger, and it leads to greater and greater devastation. But that entire time, there was another option open to him. Another option open to all of us. There is a better way in dealing with our sin. You know, Paul, the apostle, he's talking to a group of people who, also coddled and harbored their sin. They were proud of their sin, the Corinthians. And so he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter five and he says, "Your boasting and your sin is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little sin will ultimately take over the entire entity, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened because you're in Christ, our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. How differently the story of Cain and Abel would have turned out if Cain would have simply repented of his sin, confessed his resentment and anger. What would this story have been if Cain would have just gone to God and said, I've sinned and gone to Abel and said, I'm angry at you. I'm jealous of you. Please forgive me of my sin. What would have happened if he had just simply taken God up on his gracious offer? How this story would have been different. But he doesn't do this. Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll writes that in resolving conflict or sin, no matter who's guilty, the best place to start is in your relationship with God. Whether your contribution is small or great, own it, own it all. Hold yourself accountable to God and confess any sinful part. By doing so, you will have the necessary peace to make peace with your brother or sister. In verse 13 and 14, we have our first hint of remorse and regret from Cain. He finally expresses it. God tells him, Cain, you're cursed because of the murder of Abel. And here's Cain's words. He said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain, finally filled with remorse and regret. But don't confuse this remorse and regret with biblical repentance. Not at all. His remorse and regret, it's all about him, right? And now about how difficult his life is and how things are not going to work out the way he planned for them. There's no repentance here. He's not brokenhearted at all over the murder of Abel. There's no words of sorrow of how he's broken the hearts of his parents. There's there's no words indicating at all that he has any desire to throw himself on the mercy and grace of God. It's all about him and how difficult his life is. That's how it's in those words. That's the way of Cain. But That's not the way it should be. It's not the way that we have to take. You know, a few thousand years later, you find King David. He, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then to cover his sin, like Bathsheba, or like Cain, he murders Bathsheba's husband. And he lives in that sin for a while, but God comes to him in his grace because God comes to all of us in his grace, in our sin. And through the prophet of God, he's confronted. And David's response, compare David's response to to Cain's. In Psalm 51, David cries out to God and he prays, and he says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. When it comes to sin, we all have a choice. We can walk the way of Cain or we can walk the way of David. And the good news of the gospel is that no matter who you are this morning, no matter what you have come into this church bearing, God always receives sinners with grace and mercy who throw themselves at his feet and call out for it. Every time, he does not reject repentant sinners. And so this leads to our final application, one which I hope will maybe turn our hearts and our minds towards the Lord's table, which we're gonna uh, observe in just a moment. And it's a a final application that sounds very familiar. It sounds a lot like the story Christy just told our children. That God, in this story, faithfully fulfills his redemptive promises. You know, this this chapter, (laughs) it started out, out on such a high note, right? Two boys are born. And then from there, it just goes downhill. (laughs) <laughs> it just gets darker and darker and darker. Cain is angry and he rebels. He doesn't repent. He murders his brother. He's defiant towards God and lies to him. And then you see Cain's descendants and their history. Seven generations come along until we get this guy by the name of Lamech. Lamech is a songwriter And a polygamist, not that those two always go together, guys, who write songs, okay? But in this passage, what you find him doing is you find him singing a song to his wives, and it's not a love song, Mm -mm, no, it's a sin song. And he begins to sing to his wives in a boastful manner, and he says to them effectively this, if, if Cain was marred by violence, I am marked by it. If Cain was seven times worse than everyone else, I'm 70 times seven, 490 times worse. That's how bad of a guy I am. Sin has done its work. And it's a horrendous genealogy. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. This chapter doesn't end there. It starts with the birth of some boys and Eve talking to God, and it ends in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and his name, called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now at the end of this chapter, Eve's words sound different than at the beginning of the chapter. And, and this version at the end, she realized she she doesn't, you know, try to, to share God's glory. She realizes that this son that she has been given is solely due to the grace of God and he gets all the glory. Like, like Mary, thousands of years later when Jesus is born and he, she so profoundly praises God, now she looks to God and says he's fulfilled his promise. She's realized that Cain was not the promised seed of the woman and neither was Abel, but God, he didn't abandon her. He stayed faithful to her. He gave her Seth. And in the next chapter, chapter five, which we'll be skipping over and going to Noah in a couple of weeks, you find seven generations of Seth's family. You have seven in chapter four of Cain. Chapter five, you have seven of Seth. And when you compare those two lines, you see all these names that are exactly the same are very similar. And yet the storyline of Seth's family is dramatically different in the storyline of Cain's. His family line doesn't die out. And ultimately through Seth, we see God fulfilling his redemptive promise to bring about someone from the seed of the woman to destroy the seed of the serpent. And so many years, thousands of years later as Luke is writing his gospel and in chapter three when he's establishing the credentials of Jesus that he is the Messiah, the God in the flesh who's walking among us at the end of that list of credentials he says Jesus, born of, son of Seth who was the son of Adam. Eve says in verse 25 that at the appointed time she receives Seth from God. And those words, the appointed time, make me think of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, where we read that at the appointed time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive our adoption as sons and daughters. God fulfilled his redemptive promises to Eve by giving her Seth and ultimately Jesus who's in the family line of Seth. But God does something else here. He also fulfills his redemptive promises by ensuring that Jesus is in the faith line, so to speak, of Abel. Abel couldn't have a family line. He didn't have a a physical lineage because of his death. But did he ever have a spiritual lineage? I mean, consider for a moment. Abel was a shepherd who obeyed God and then was murdered by his brother because of his obedience. And we read in John chapter 10 that Jesus is that good shepherd, that great shepherd, who perfectly obeys God, and as a result, he's murdered by his brethren. Remember what Genesis 3 teaches us, that the the arc of human history is conflict and war between the seed of the serpent, all of humanity that worships self and sin and sets themselves up as God instead of trusting in Christ. It's war between the seed of the serpent And the seed of the woman, all of humanity who trusts in Christ and worships God and repents of sin. And here, Abel, the first seed of the woman, is killed by the first member of the seed of the serpent. And in this murder, he foreshadows Jesus, the ultimate, perfect seed of the woman who will also be murdered by the seed of the serpent. But in his murder, Satan does not win. For he does not stay dead, he rises again. And the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 12, that Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How is it that the shed blood of Jesus Is a better word than the shed blood of Abel. Why is this the case? Because it's through the shed blood of Jesus that Adam and Eve's sins are forgiven, that Seth's sins and Abraham's sins and David's sins. And your sins and my sins and the sins of anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ are forgiven. It's through this blood, his shed blood, that we know this to be true. You know, there's a passage, a scripture that I often read in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And I'd like us to read it together as we move to this time of worship. Worship. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it's a verse that I think you know, is, is hitting on what the, the story of Cain and Abel allude to, that precious blood of Christ. Let's read this aloud together. 1 John 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. The Lord's table is that time where we come together and we recognize the truth that is in this verse, the promise that is foreshadowed in Genesis chapter four. This is a meal that everyone may partake of who has trusted in this shed blood of Christ and his death burial and resurrection. If you know Christ as your Lord and savior, you're invited to take this meal with us this morning But if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, this meal is meant to convict you. It's meant to encourage you, not to go the way of Cain and to insist on your own worship and rebellion and doing life the way you think it should be done. It's meant to convict you and tell you your creator has provided salvation through Jesus Christ. And even today, your sins can be forgiven Right where you sit, you can bow your head and pray and just throw yourself on the mercy and grace of God and tell him, I'm a sinner. Father, I'm a sinner. I want my sins forgiven. Lord Jesus, my life is yours. I'm trusting in you now, no longer myself. That's what this meal points us to. And I would encourage you, those of you who don't know Christ, to pray that this morning. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning you have underneath your seat one of these little self-contained packets of bread and juice and We uh, encourage all of you who know Christ, who are in good standing with a local church to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's partake of it together. There's a top little layer. It's kind of thin. Tear that off. That'll give you access to the wafer and then tear off the main section for the drink. Whenever we eat of his body and drink of this cup, We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, for shedding your blood. We thank you for the rich heritage, men like Abel and all who walk in that way, who point us to you, the true hero of every story in the Bible, the one who took our place. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. Amen. Church, take and eat in remembrance of him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that you have made by giving us Jesus. We thank you that your love was so great that you pursued Cain in the midst of his sin, That you throughout the scriptures will pursue men and women offering grace and mercy to them. And Lord, in the same way you've pursued us this morning, men and women like them, born in sin, insisting on our own worship and on our own way. But Lord, your grace is greater than our sin. And so we praise you, we honor you, that you fulfill your redemptive promises to us And in calling us before the foundations of this world were ever laid, you have put everything in place for our salvation so that your justice could be paid and satisfied. And Lord, you at the appointed time sent your spirit to our hearts to give us faith and a desire to turn to you. And God, you get all the glory for our salvation. And we come to you this morning simply saying thank you and praising you for your overabundant grace. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.